All right, good morning, everyone. Um, as always, I am very thankful to be able to worship with you and to share God's word with you this morning. I can't remember the last time it rained on a Sunday. Uh, what a gloomy day it is. So I'm going to try my best to lift the spirits and hopefully uh, wake us up a little bit. I know it could be tiring in this dark season. And um, hope you're staying warm, too. It's, it's officially very, very cold. And the sickness is it's crazy right now going around. So if you are sick, hope you heal up. Uh, if your kids are sick, hopefully you are staying strong. And if you're not sick yet, Lord willing, you don't get sick. But yeah, I can't remember the last time we had like a full-blown official winter cold sick season. Uh, maybe I got too used to that one COVID version. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm just glad you could join us. And if you're new or visiting, my name is Sam. I'm part of the pastoral staff. And obviously, we want to welcome you. Uh, please do note about, again, the slight adjustments for Christmas Eve service and New Year's service. In particular, formation group, uh, something we've been praying, thinking about, and planning for a long time. Very excited to finally see that it's right about to happen and, and, and launch off. And I'm looking forward to see what God does uh, when we create avenues and groups specifically for the purpose of growing together spiritually. Um, that's still something that I think would be very pleasing to God and what ultimately the church is for. So looking forward to seeing you. But it is so crazy to think that we are already thick into the Christmas season. Uh, my son Ezra, his favorite song is Jingle Bell, so we've heard it about a thousand times. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just full-blown Christmas season shopping. It's right around the corner. And obviously, it goes without saying, it's a time of uh, family and, and vacation and breaks. And um, obviously, you know, the world at large kind of loves this holiday season. But for the for the Christian calendar, uh, the four weeks leading up to Christmas is historically called Advent, which literally translates to mean coming or arrival. And the Advent season, it, it is built into the annual church calendar. It's a rhythm that Christians are supposed to practice to take intentional time to kind of anticipate not only the, the birth of Jesus, but more specifically in our context, the return of Jesus. And so obviously we are a week behind, but we'll be starting a, a new three-week Advent sermon series in light of this season and Christmas titled God With Us. And the hope is specifically to look at how God is with us in three particular areas, to give you a broad snapshot. Today we're going to look at how God is with us in our waiting. Next week, uh, we're going to actually look at the genealogy of Christ and look at how God is with us in our brokenness. And then on Christmas Eve service, I hope to talk about the circumstances surrounding the narrative of birth, the birth of Jesus and talk about how God is with us in our adversity, right? Waiting, brokenness, and adversity. Talk about three more relevant things in our day and age today. So if you have your Bibles or your bulletins, we're going to look at two texts to start off our message. First, we'll look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 to 23, kind of to kick off this entire series. And then particularly, I'll speak from Luke chapter 2. So uh, again, Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, and then we'll get Luke chapter 2, starting from verse 25. And at our church, uh, every time we open God's word and read from it, we believe God is present, that he's active and living and moving. So if we can all rise together uh, as we open God's word and read together. So first, Matthew chapter 1, this is a snapshot talking about the narrative of the birth of Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 is the reading of God's word. It reads, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, hence the title of this series. Now look at Luke chapter 2 from verse 25. After the birth of Jesus is the context. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came into the spirit, into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, as we open your word and enter this Advent season, we pray that you can fill our hearts not only with excitement of the year end and breaks and vacations, but of a reminder of the bigger picture of anticipation, the anticipation that would have filled the historic Christian Christian church for the coming of Christ, and more specifically for us today, to get us outside of the immediate felt needs of our day and age, and to recognize there's a grander story and picture of a Lord who is going to be returning. And so we thank you for this season that's built in to remind us of that. Uh, Won't you bless us and speak to us today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So, um, I mean, I haven't lived that much life, but the more life I live, there are a fair share of difficult seasons. I'm sure there are for many of you as well. And a personal realization I've made is that more than seasons of clear blessing, where things are going really well, and hopefully that's the case for a lot of you, or even seasons of uh, explicit suffering and hardship, where, hey, man, life is just really hard right now, and I can pinpoint why. I've personally found that seasons of waiting are uniquely and particularly difficult. Right? More than life going really well or really bad, uh, seasons of waiting are really hard. Um, a story, and I shared this illustration years ago, but I think it captures it so well. I think a story that pictures why waiting is so difficult is the story of a famous dog named Hachi. Right? I don't know if you know, but there's a movie they made off this famous dog named Hachi. And basically, it's a movie about a dog uh, who is a, a, basically a puppy, gets abandoned in Japan, and the story follows how this Japanese professor... Uh, feels compassion for this dog, adopts Hachi, names him Hachiko, and then the way their relationship is kind of summarized is Hachi has so much love and affinity for the professor that their daily routine is Hachi goes with him to the train station, sees him go off to work, waits hours until he returns, and they get very, very close, and he ends up going home, and that's kind of the daily routine, right? So especially if you're a dog lover, I'm sure that might warm your heartstrings. Well, the story goes that the owner dies unexpectedly. Without Hachi knowing about it, obviously. And so Hachi waits patiently at the train station in the snow for hours. Owner does not return. And so Hachi becomes kind of like this famous local figure because every day he returns to the train station, Shibuya, for the next nine years without fail. Sits, waits for the owner, waiting that, hoping that the owner is going to come out of the train, doesn't come, and story goes, Hachi eventually passes away. And to this day, there's a bronze statue. I took that picture in Japan, by the way. Photo credit me, right? There's a legitimate statue. I didn't believe it, so I went there to see at Shibuya State. There is a legitimate bronze statue of Hachi, right? So I, I paid my respects, and I'm like, wow, this is a real story. And I say that because I think that image and story of Hachi, it portrays the difficult and aggravating feeling of waiting that we all experience at some point in our life. Now, waiting could look like a lot of different things for many different people, right? Some situations in our context might be something as simple as waiting for a new car. I bring that one up because that was me this past year. I was waiting a long time for a minivan, (laughs) and I finally got it, right? Praise God. I'll share more about that later. It could be a season of waiting for a job. I know a lot of us work in the tech industry. It's a very tough time for that, so maybe you're experiencing... uh, unexpected layoffs, or you're still waiting because the market's not as good, maybe you're waiting for a certain relationship, you're waiting for marriage, or this is a more uh, subversive one, but maybe you're waiting for like someone to change. I find this happen a lot in my life. You're waiting for a friend to change, or a family member to change, or even yourself to change, and it's not really happening. 
You might be waiting for a situational change because things are just really tough for you contextually or maybe for your family. Uh, it could be a difficult season that's not often talked about, but you're trying to start a family, and that's a very excruciating time of waiting. Or it could be waiting to see if like, your family's health is going to be okay, right? Uh, a lot, we're slowly growing older as a church, so now we're seeing you know, our, our parents and our grandparents are getting legitimately sick, and are they going to be okay? And we kind of wait to hear a diagnosis like that. And all that is to say, one author puts it like this, and I think it's a good, vivid picture. I quote, For many people, waiting is an awful desert between where they are and where they want to go, and people do not like such a place. They want to get out of it by doing something. So waiting is this excruciating desert that nobody wants to be in and wants to get out of. And I reflected a lot about this idea of waiting, and I came to this conclusion. I think one of the primary reasons waiting is so difficult is if, at its core, waiting forces you to deal with uncertainty. It forces you to deal with uncertainty. Uh, ever since we were little, and I see this in my uh, two-year-old toddler, we kind of developed this craving to, to know, like to be in the loop, right? That's why when you see kind of like those family movies, one of the most common pictures is when they're on a road trip or a vacation, the kids are always in the back saying, what, are we there yet? When are we going to get there? I want to know. I want certainty. I want you to put me in the loop. Our society as a whole is moving towards certainty. There's very few things that you can't know exactly now, right? Like back in the day, if you ordered pizza, you just wait till it comes to your door. Now they tell you when it went in the oven, when they got out of the oven, what kind of toppings they put on it, when it got in the car, when they're going to get to your gate. You have certainty for almost every aspect of life, including when your pizza is going to come to you. And so there is this nagging, craving hardwired in us that we almost kind of find security and safety in certainty, and it makes so much sense why waiting is therefore so hard, especially in our culture today, because number one, waiting is absolutely inefficient for our culture, right? We live in a highly schedule-based, efficiency-oriented culture. We like things done on time, on our time, and so we don't like waiting because it seems like a waste of time, right? Waiting is this, it's this obstacle, and it is this thing that does not respect our, our value of efficiency. Second, as mentioned, it forces you to sit in uncertainty, in this increasing age of knowledge and information and Google and Siri, uncertainty is something that I think feels like a foreign intruder to our people in our day and age. And third, waiting rips control out of your hands, right? It forces you to realize you're actually not in control, that you actually can't dictate the when, how, and what, and why of every situation in life. You are absolutely powerless sometimes. And yet the issue is that so much of life, though, is characterized by seasons of waiting, whether we like it or not. So think about your life, either right now in the recent past or maybe in the near future. Do you see yourself in a season where God may be calling you to wait on him? And more than likely, if you really take some time, the answer would be yes. So where do we take our worries and our anxieties when we are forced into situations of waiting? And to answer that question, we're going to look at a, a somewhat obscure character named Simeon, right? Not often talked about, not that many people know who he is. And see from him that faithful waiting on God includes at least three things. Number one, it requires a confidence in God's word. Number two, waiting on God requires faithful perseverance. And three, waiting on God requires trust. And my hope is that whether you are explicitly in a season of waiting or not, that we can all take time to pause and reflect in this season of Advent to assess if we call ourselves Christians, are we living lives that reflect what it means to wait on the Lord in our day-to-day -day lives? Okay, so that's the overarching hope. So first, waiting requires a confidence in God's word. 
So by way of uh, necessity, obviously not many of us know who Simeon is, so let me give you a little context of this character Simeon that we read about. Um, Luke 2 is the only instance that we hear of this character Simeon. And we are told in verse 25 very simply that he seems to just be an ordinary, righteous, devout Jew who was particularly filled with the Spirit. So why is a random Jew named Simeon included in the kind of Christmas birth story of Jesus? Well, it's because he's described as a man who was, quote, waiting for the consolation of Israel, right? So he is a man who is in a state of waiting, and he kind of represents the posture of the nation of Israel as a whole who was clinging to God's promise that they would be delivered. Now, delivered from what, right? You need a little bit of history about Israel. For hundreds of years, Israel did not have their own land. They lived under oppression from foreign powers, right? Most of the Old Testament is about Israel's going from Assyrian rule, then Babylonian rule, then Persian rule, then Greek rule, and then lastly, Roman rule, which many argue was the worst, and that's the context that Simeon's living in. So this waiting for deliverance, it's not just a short wait. In fact, 700 years passes from when God gives the initial promise that a deliverer will be sent to when Jesus is actually born, 700 years. So how does Simeon remain hopeful in waiting despite the fact that literal generations have passed without God sending deliverance? You ever think about that? Now this is, I know I'm going 100 to zero here, but people asked me a similar question when I told them I was waiting for a minivan, <laughs> right? So I put my name down in January, right? And people would say, that is such a long wait. It's December right now. Like, what, how, how are you waiting so long, right? It's, it's just a car. Like, do you really think you'll get it? Like, what helps you wait so long? And if I was just waiting blindly, like with no basis uh, to place my confidence in, I would have no answer for them. I would say, I just hope, you know, they, they give me the car. But what I did is I bust out my confirmation receipt of my $500 deposit and say, I have security in this, right? I have a written word that says, I am in line. It doesn't say when it's going to come, but it says you're guaranteed a spot. And I cling to this confidence. And so similarly, it's because Simeon has a knowledge and confidence in God's word that he could wait, even though it is uncertain when it will happen, he can wait without wavering. Simeon didn't base his waiting on his own personal desires or his own opinion, but he based it on the concrete words of God himself, right? We see this further in verse 29, when Simeon thanks God for letting him finally depart in peace according to his word. And if you look at everything Simeon says to Mary, even though he's holding a baby for the first time, because of the promises of God, he knows everything about this baby and what's going to happen. So the first thing we see about waiting on the Lord, it has to be rooted in a biblical promise and in God's word. In other words, waiting on the Lord, it's not random, but it has a firm foundation, and Simeon models that. Now, for some of us, um, we have a generic belief that God is for us. You talk to any Christian on the street, they'll love, you know, those kind of cliche catchphrases like, God is for us, not against us. God has plans for me. If I wait on God, he's going to pull through. But I would argue, you know, that is a, a very shaky and shallow ground to stand on. And I would argue... The call here that Simeon is modeling is, as Christians, we need to dig deeper into God's word to anchor our confidence in something more concrete, right? That's why I'm actually very excited for formation groups, because this year we're focusing on scripture reading, and it just, it is somewhat shocking that, uh, I I don't, this is not hyperbolic, nine out of ten Christians that today, in today's age, do not touch their Bibles. It's not even like I'm struggling to read 
or like, oh, I read here and there. It's I don't read. And what Simeon would say and what all Christians throughout history would say is what is the basis of your confidence then in your following of God if not on his word? Right, Pastor Tom, when he talked about scripture reading as a practice, he said a very pointed statement, which I think is so true. It is baffling that so many Christians base their entire life off this book that they've never even read. Right? And so that being said, it's no wonder then why so many people get jaded or upset with God. Right? And this, unfortunately, this is an archetype of why people fall away. They'll go, they say, I love I love God, God is for me, yes, I got to wait on him, and they'll go through a time of suffering, and they'll come to me and say, Pastor Sam, I'm so angry at God, how could he let this happen? And I say, what happened? And they'll say something like, uh, I lost my job, I'm going through a hardship, uh, I'm experiencing suffering, and then I'll say, did God ever say that you would not go through those things in his word? In fact, on the contrary, I could find many scriptures that say, if you're a Christian, you will face hardship, you will go through suffering, and that he will use those very things to grow you in godliness. And so what that shows is, oh, your, your confidence is not on God's word, but it's on this generic understanding that God is for you, but is not based on truth. And so that's very important to understand that waiting on the Lord requires confidence on his word. Second, waiting on the Lord requires faithful perseverance. I think if there's one trait that's becoming more and more difficult to see modeled and practiced in our culture today, I think it's perseverance. Um, perseverance, by definition is persistence or consistency in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. In other words, persistence and perseverance is modeled in that you keep on doing it no matter what. It is seen in your relentlessness to no matter the outcome, no matter how long it takes, you are continuing to do it. Now, when we think of the heroes of the Christian faith, right, like Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, and even Jesus— uh, I know for me growing up in the church, naturally what is highlighted about these great figures of the faith is the great and mighty works they accomplish, is it not? That God accomplishes through them. But did you know the common thread that ties all these characters together is they all had extensive seasons of waiting where they had to faithfully persevere and keep on going through long, difficult, dry periods. For example, Abraham known as the father of faith, right? God promises Abraham that he'll have a son, that he will lead to many descendants. And usually, you know, if you do a vacation Bible school craft for a kid, it's going to highlight the apex moments of Abraham's life where he gets the H in his name and goes from Abraham to Abraham, and he's like holding this knife and all these glorious moments. But did you know after God gives him that promise, nothing happens for 25 years. For 25 years, Abraham's just waiting. In his old age. Joseph, right? We hear the story of Joseph, technicolor coat, rainbow coat, right? He, he, he gets enslaved and suddenly he becomes the second in control in Egypt. And wow, what an amazing guy. And that's kind of what's highlighted about him. But did you know, Joseph, he is sold into slavery at age 17. And he doesn't rise to power until age 30, which means there's a 13-year period of waiting that is not emphasized in which he is imprisoned. He does not know what's going to happen. He's literally going through the system and just being faithful. And even Jesus himself does not enter this world guns blazing into ministry. He comes in the humble form of a baby, and he does not speak a word of ministry until he is 30 years old. So 30 years of waiting before he does anything. All this is to say the implication for all the characters we see here who wait on the Lord is their life is characterized by perseverance. 
that they faithfully and actively live out ordinary devotion to God. Sure, there are glorious moments. Sure, there are craft-worthy moments. But the vast majority of their life is a lot like yours and mine. Normal, mundane, waiting, and faithful. In the case of Simeon, verse 26 implies that he was old in age. Right? Because he's clinging to this promise that before you die, you're going to see Jesus. So that implies he's in his last years. And he's clinging to this promise, and which means he spent his entire life as a faithful Jew, decades of his life, as the text says, just living a righteous and devout life, waiting for God to show up. And this is where I think I want to deconstruct the fact that I think a lot of Christianity, for our context, is really based off hype rather than faithfulness. And it's the case in my own life as well. Here's what I mean. For example, we all get excited when somebody shares how God changes their life upside down, 180 degrees overnight, right? Like that's seen as like, oh my gosh, God is working powerfully. You're an amazing testimony. And so in my context growing up, it would be like someone would say, yeah, you know, I was in a gang and I did all these things, but, you know, I was supposed to die in a car crash. Nothing happened. I, I gave my life to the Lord. And we kind of highlight that as like, those are the glorious moments of God's work. Very rarely is it emphasized, though, that what led to that moment in their life was the faithful decades of prayer that their parents, their grandparents, community, and family was praying for them that God would move and soften their hearts. Faithful, persevering, relentless prayer saying, please, God. Or to get a little more real, many of us, we share post-COVID that we don't like the fact that I feel spiritually stagnant. I hear this all the time, right? And I understand. I feel spiritually dry. I lack intimacy with God. I want to feel closer to God. But few of us are willing to now do something about it and apply the daily spiritual practices that we've literally spent eight weeks talking about, things like Bible reading and prayer to create the faithful rhythms necessary to draw near to him. And what this shows is that our understanding of Christianity is hypey. It's about High moments and glorious instantaneous things, but it's not about the faithful, long-lasting, persevering devotion to the Lord. I think Eugene Peterson puts it well when he says, a true faithful Christian displays a long obedience in the same direction. And I think it's fitting that his subheading for that is discipleship in an instant society. I don't think a lot of us have a problem with the idea of waiting on God. I think we have a hard time waiting a long time for God. And the increasingly disappearing fruit of Christianity in our day and age is patience and perseverance through the thick and thin of life. And that's where we have to see God is not passive or absent in our waiting, but scripture attests to the reality it is most often in our waiting and in our desert dry seasons where God is actively working. That's always the case. And so what I wish we'd highlight more are testimonies that say like this. I am a 60-year-old Christian. I've been walking with the Lord for 30 years. And the picture of my discipleship is every day I try to read God's word, spend time with him in prayer, love my family, and serve the church. That's it. I think we need more of that to counterbalance, I think, kind of what Christianity has become for so many of us. Also challenged, so PKs, pastor's kids, I'm a pastor's kid, I know some of you are pastor's kids, uh, the, the running joke back in the day, which is true, unfortunately, is you either really, you end up really messed up or you end up like a good Christian, right? There's like, there's no middle ground. And what usually, um, I remember there's one uh, Christian 
pastor's kid that I really, really respect. And I always try to see what is it about PKs that some of them, obviously in the end it's God's sovereignty, but some of them end up like loving the Lord and some of them end up turning away. Usually the PKs that end up furthest from the Lord have the most successful pastors as fathers. Did you know that? Charismatic, great preachers, amazing public ministry, fruitful in the public eye. And the pastor's kids who usually end up really well, not to say that they aren't successful, but at least the testimony I heard, I said, hey, what was the most formative thing? And this pastor in particular said, you know, my dad, he had a faithful ministry, he loved the church, he did his thing, but none of that really mattered to me. What formed me was every morning I would see my father on his knees with Bible in hand, just praying to God. And that is the lasting image I have for all my life. That's so challenging to me. Like, it, it, it scares me to think that my two sons, they might be in here, hear me talk all of this, and they see zero actual perseverance in what it means to be devoted to the Lord at home. So challenging. So in the seasons where you feel especially dry or feel distant, or you don't even feel like obeying God, by definition, that's when the fruit of perseverance must kick in because God is at work. Not only in your circumstance, but more specifically in your heart. Brian Heasley, an author regarding this, he says, quote, For our generation to survive and thrive, we need to learn the art of perseverance in a culture of immediacy, which may not come without deliberate effort. Perseverance is about recognizing that we are part of a bigger picture. There's often much more at play than we realize, and sometimes we don't see instant results. Well, to summarize, it often isn't in the instant grandiose displays of faith, but rather in the constant, often subtle practice of faith that true godliness and spiritual growth happens. Which leads to the third and final and arguably the most important point, waiting on the Lord requires trust. So 700 years of Israel's waiting, constant oppression, political division, conquering from nations. And so Simeon was probably a faithful, devout Jew, and like much of the other Jews, all of them would agree God's deliverance and Messiah is going to come in a powerful figure at the very least. Makes sense, right? Maybe a military commander, maybe a strong political leader that we can rally around. But instead we see that in his ailing age, the hope that he has been waiting for fits in his hands. It's a baby, eight days old. We see that the fulfillment of God's promise that Simeon had been, Simeon, an entire nation had been waiting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for was this seemingly helpless child. Now, Obviously, that's not what Simeon would have expected. So his tension is, I know that God is faithful, and I know that he's going to fulfill his promise, but definitely did not think it would be in this way. Definitely didn't meet my expectations. But instead of complaining or confronting God about it, what does he do? Instantaneously, he takes the child in his arms, embraces and blesses God, which shows in his head he's thinking, well, even if it doesn't meet my expectations, if this is God's chosen method and means and person for deliverance, then this is the truest and best and only way for God to actually come through on his promise. It doesn't matter what I think about it. Many of us have no problem with trusting that God is good, that he is for us, but we do have a specific idea of what that goodness ought to look like. See, some of us wait on the Lord and we're looking for a job, and when we don't get that job, we get upset or disappointed. And what that reveals is you were not waiting on the Lord, you were waiting on that job. 
Some of us don't mind waiting, but we have a clear idea of how long is a reasonable amount of time to wait. And when that time passes, we get upset with God and we think, what the heck? And then what I would say in that case, what that reveals, you're not waiting on God, you're waiting on your timeline. Others of us wait on the Lord, but if waiting on him includes the Spirit maneuvering into your heart and convicting you to move into action, to get out of your comfort zone, to, to relate to people or do things you don't normally do, and you say, oh, okay, actually, I don't want to do that. In that case, you're not waiting on God and dying to yourself in the process. You're just remaining complacent. And so the question is then, what will motivate us and move us to get to a place where waiting and trusting God is not just conceptual, but we really can believe God is good? And that all he does in my life, the delays, the twists, the turns, the difficulty, is really for our good. Well, for one, the Bible is filled with verses that say legitimately, waiting on God, it's a great way to live. Lamentation 3.25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Psalm 37, wait for the Lord and he will exalt you to inherit the land. Isaiah 64, from of old no one has heard or perceived, no eye has seen. Uh, of a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. So scripture is littered with scriptures that say waiting is a very fruitful, prosperous way to live and God almost looks for people who wait upon him to bless them. So point number one, if you have confidence in God's word, that may be sufficient enough. But for others of us, let me kind of give a more practical illustration. The natural question you're saying is easy to say, but it's a lot harder to wait in real life. That's where I would push back and say, and give a little bit of an extended analogy here. Uh, Well, we all wait for things, right? That's not something that only some people do. The question is not, can you wait? The real question is, well, what are you willing to wait for? Right? That's what it boils down to. And so this is where uh, a Netflix show kind of totally changed my perception of food. It was this show called Chef's Table uh, a while back. It gave me this epiphany. Because all of us are willing to wait for food. And we all understand, but it kind of depends on what the food is that's going to determine how long we're going to wait. That's why literally fast food, if it takes a long time, it's it's an oxymoron, right? The only reason we're willing to get fast food is because it's fast. It's not going to be the most tasty. It's not going to be the most delicious. But hey, we want it fast. We get it fast. That's how long I'm willing to wait. But certain restaurants, right? Not fast food restaurants, but when word spreads that this restaurant has an amazing dish or a bomb item, like on a day like today, I think about sup noodle, right, on beach in that plaza. I think about the short rib pho, shaken style, and I just think, wow, I am willing to wait for that today. I'm willing to wait up to 33 minutes, right? That's kind of my limit. And why am I willing to wait? Because I understand good food could take time, and I'm willing to wait for it. So places you won't wait long for are places you don't expect much from. Places you will wait longer for is because you have faith in the dish, I have faith in, the, in the, the short rib. If you get like the veggie pho, I can't, I can't have confidence in that. I don't know if it's good or not. But this dish I do. That picture of that dish is what I have confidence in. Now what Chef's Table did for me is it shows me there's a level beyond that. right? There's like fast food, whatever, I don't care. There's amazing dishes. But I was introduced to something called a Michelin star. Okay? Basically what a Michelin star is, if you don't know, it is this uh, commonly accepted grading system for chefs and restaurants that this ultra-reputable French company gives. And if you get a Michelin star as a chef in a restaurant, you're legit. Like, people will travel across the globe. People will do reservations years in advance to get a reservation at a Michelin star restaurant. Now, it's a big deal. And I, I was like a little kid learning new information. It's like, one Michelin stars are amazing, but a select few get three Michelin stars, which basically means you are a culinary god. 
Like you have reached the highest point of culinary expertise. And the way this kind of manifests is when they interview one Michelin star chefs and ask them about their menu, what the chefs will do is they'll go into detail talking about how special their menu is. Like we cook steak in this amazing way and we have these special appetizers that only we have and people come hungry and craving these dishes and this is the you know, items that only we carry. On the contrary, when they interview three Michelin star chefs and ask them, hey, what's on your menu? It's kind of prideful, but they, they kind of chuckle and they say, I don't have a menu, right? I know, I, I try to copy their accent, but usually it kind of sounds like that, right? I don't have a menu. And then they're like, what do you mean you don't have a menu? And if you boil down the reason why, it is literally because their knowledge and expertise of food, it cannot be confined to a set menu. Like it is too restricting and it is too confining for them and it would not accurately represent who they are as a chef. So the question you have to ask is, why are people waiting years to eat at a restaurant where there's no menu and you don't know what to expect? Why are people willing to wait so long in the midst of such uncertainty? Because we hate uncertainty. Here's why. They trust the chef. In one Michelin star restaurants, people come for the food. In three Michelin star restaurants, people come for the chef. A lot of us have a one Michelin star view of God. We expect God to make us good dishes in life. We hope that he pulls through, but every now and then we get something that doesn't taste so good and we start to question. You see, in a three Michelin star restaurant, whatever comes out of the chef's kitchen is good by default. And that's a funny thing, because when you get to that level of cuisine, if something comes out of the kitchen and it doesn't taste good to you, nobody thinks what's wrong with the dish. Everybody says, what's wrong with you? Your palate is unrefined. You just don't understand food. Nothing's wrong with the chef or the dish. Something's wrong with you. And the chef, in turn, receives glory in the fact that these people are willing to wait hours, months, and years to come without knowing what they're going to get because that's how much faith they have in me as a chef and my knowledge of food. And my joy is now to match that faith and trust in me to create something that is worth their wait. Now, this might still seem theoretical, so I have a personal experience to share about this, how this played out in my life recently. So if you don't know, my family is scattered across the world. My parents live in Korea, my sister lives in Japan, my brother lives in San Jose, and we've kind of been scattered for a while. Uh, And one of my greatest prayer requests and longing, and you might know this if you've shared community with me in any sort of degree, for years has been, I miss my family, really wish you could reunite, Uh, there's significant moments happening in my life that we're not able to share together. And so back in 2020, this all kind of hit a culmination because in 2020, my sister got married and no family was at her wedding because Japan closed all the borders. So through Zoom, we had to watch my sister get married, right? Never even got to meet her husband. Not only in 2020, I had my first son, Ezra. None of my family got to meet him, right? Because COVID. And every time this was happening, I was kind of frustrated with God thinking, okay, What's going on here? Like, I can't spend time with family. Why can't you make this? I was praying. I was waiting. And every time it seemed to get delayed, delayed, and delayed. And not only that, my parents couldn't just come when they wanted because my mom is in a situation where she has to work. And so she doesn't even get time off. So it's almost like every time the stars almost aligned, something wasn't working in someone's life. And so years passed. I had a second son, Zach. They never met him. My sister had a son, Levi. Never met him. And more and more and more times passing by and getting frustrated thinking there's all these 
barriers for me to just get a very natural desire, which is why can't my family be together in these pivotal moments? And I'm a very logical guy. I legitimately came to a place where I thought it might never happen. Like, I don't know how my parents' health is, right? Like, Korean parents will never tell you how they really are. They'll always say, I'm fine. And I have to ask them 10,000 times, and they'll be like, okay, actually, like, I'm taking, like, medicines for my liver. I'm like, why did it take, like, 10,000 questions for you to tell me that? That's just the nature of Korean parents, right? And so I was legitimately thinking it might never happen. So I just surrendered to God. I said, I'm going to wait. Hopefully it happens. I just don't see a dish possible, right? Like, I'm pretty good at cooking, using that analogy. And I just, I don't, I don't see how it could happen, given our unique circumstances. Well, long story short, this past Thanksgiving, God made a way for us to not only reunite, but to reunite in the fullest way possible. Because had we met any earlier, my sister would not have had Levi. My sister would not have been married. I would not have had Ezra or Zach. My brother would not be in a situation where, without going into too much deal, he's in a much better place. And so it had to be this past Thanksgiving. Any earlier would not have worked out. No one could have seen that. And so we united in the fullest way possible where it was, a, it was a week of a lot of firsts. I got to meet Adam, my brother-in-law, for the first time. I got to be uncle to Levi for the first time. My parents got to see Ezra and uh, Zach for the first time. And just to show you guys like, you know, how meaningful it was for me, there's a photo back here. So that's grandparents with the kids, right? That's the first thing my parents did. They put them in these like, military outfits and said, take a picture, right? Yeah. That's my dad's mantra in life. All that remains is pictures. So take pictures, right? So we took a lot of pictures. But... I, it didn't hit me actually till like yesterday sitting. I was like, this would have never happened if, if it went the way I wanted it to go. Right? You don't just come from Korea and Japan at any time. And so for my grandparents to be able to fulfill that longing and burden, to be grandparents to all their married kids now, all having families, and I don't take any of that for granted. It was each one of us, God, uniquely working in our situation, working in our waiting, orchestrating way more things than we could ever imagine for this to be able to happen, while still gently being with me in my frustration that when is this going to happen, God? And as I was preparing the sermon, I was like, I can't think of a practical illustration. I just looked at the photo. I was like, oh my God, there is one. That God is with you in your waiting, and he is working. Another photo, a family together. So this was our, our pseudo uh, wedding reception for my sister and Adam because they weren't able to obviously you know, celebrate together, so we were able to all be together. And I was so humbled as I reflected because if I clung too tightly to my understanding, I'd become a very frustrated, bitter, and disappointed disciple of God. Because I think I'm a better chef than God. I see the ingredients of life. What could you possibly make that's better than this, God? This is obviously the best way to go. But what God shows is he's a three Michelin star God. You cannot confine him to your limited understanding of how you think things should go. And the best way to exercise that understanding of his character is not to demand, but to wait. Because God works in our waiting in ways that we can't expect and in ways that will surpass our expectations. And it takes time. To give you perspective about this, my dad has been in ministry for a long time. He's had lots of ups and downs. I've shared with some, some people here. And now he's at retirement age. He's 66. Many would argue he's at the end of the road, right? Like in, at least in like the Korean church, 70 is when you're done. So he's thinking he's at the end of the road and it's going to finish out. And uh, basically, long story short, um, this elder from this church came to recruit my dad to ministry. 
And my dad's like, what the heck are you doing recruiting me? I'm 66 years old. Don't you want someone younger? Like, what are you doing coming to me? And he basically said, I know you, Pastor Bay. I know your story. And I specifically came to you, even though all these other people want to come, because I think, I believe that you will preach the pure gospel to our church. And my dad was like, what? And he looked at my mom. He's all like, I'm 66 years old. Who does that? And my mom is the godliest woman ever. She's like, you're still younger than Abraham. <laughs> so Abraham was like 85 when he had a kid. So stop complaining. And it took 66 years for God to finally get you to a place where he could use you. So humbling. And yet here we are, what, 20, 30-year-olds? Like, what the heck, God? We need to read our Bibles. We need to see God is a long-suffering God, and it's not his impatience. It's some of us require lots of work. And it takes time, and he's not going to shortcut it. And I think it brings God so much joy when we view his involvement in our life in this way. That no matter how hard seasons may be or how long seasons may be, that God is saying, trust me. I'm not absent or passive, but I'm going to work. I'm growing your trust in me. Don't turn to lesser things. Don't turn away. It will be worth it. Be still. Wait on the Lord. So waiting requires trust. But here's the conclusion and kind of the application. The problem with trust is you don't trust out of thin air. If a stranger came up to me on the street and said, trust me, I would say no. (laughs) I have no basis to trust you. Why would I trust you with anything? What track record is there? Like what proof do you have that you're trustworthy? And isn't that what Advent is all about? Advent for us is that we have the privilege of being on the other side of the 700 years that Israel and Simeon was waiting for in the fulfillment of the birth of Jesus Christ. And now we have the vantage point that God has come through on the fulfillment of that promise through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. So he has already proven his faithfulness and track record in this. And so Advent for us now is even more advantageous that we now live in anticipation, not only that he has come, but that now he is going to come and return to make all things new. The church, to conclude, the Lord Jesus has come. He has conquered the grave. And he promises he will return to redeem us once and for all. And the challenge for us today is, do you believe this? And if you believe this, does your life reflect this belief? That is a reflection and question for us all. And that's every year what Advent does for the church and in the hearts of Christians. So as I invite the praise team up, uh, just one simple reflection for us as we close in light of the call to wait on God. Obviously, it's a very large question to consider. But I think once a year it's worth it. Do you believe, Christians sitting here today, that Jesus has come, has rose, and will come again? And if you do believe that, has it been tucked away as something that is inconsequential in your life, then this Advent season is for you to dust it off and bring it back to the forefront. Does your life be characterized as someone who's actively living in anticipation of his return? And for other of us, maybe if you're not a Christian or if you're exploring, waiting is not a Christian thing. It is a universal thing. And I would ask, where do you place your security and hope as you wait? Because the invitation is that there is a God who is willing to enter your life, be with you as manifested through Jesus Christ, and to walk with you in seasons of ups and downs 
and to work in your waiting to ultimate redemption. So let's take some moment and then let's pray.